book of James is a fiery and focused epistle. You start out in chapter 1 and you make your way through chapter 5 and you see how serious James is about just about everything he says. James lets us know what's on his mind and on his heart and he wants to get it across to us as we read the book. As you read the book of James, there's one word that rises to the surface above the others. It's a word that we've used to sort of be the undergoing, undergirding title of this entire seminar, and that is, it's practical. And what we mean by the book of James being practical is that it doesn't have high and lofty themes that are out of the reach of the general populace, but instead, the book of James gets right down to where we live. James deals with the things that we deal with on a daily basis, and he says, this is what real life is all about. He talks about trials and difficulties in chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Prejudice and favoritism in chapter 2, 1 through 13. Our speech and the way we use it versus the way that we should in chapter 3. Internal strife and fighting in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, the subject we're discussing tonight. But the book of James is not James's version of a first century blog post, just scattered different ideas throughout the book. In fact, everything that James says throughout the book is girded underneath the reality of who God is and what God does and has done. In chapter one, in verse five, he says God gives wisdom and we should seek it from him. He gives every good and every perfect gift. James 1, 17 and 18. He gives the crown of life in James chapter 1 and verse 12. Heavenly wisdom from above, James 3, 17 and 18. And he's also the God that hears and answers prayers, James 5, 13 through 18. And James' whole point is in view of everything that God has done for us and is doing with us. There is nothing that he can ask of us that we shouldn't do in response. That's the whole thrust of the idea in chapter 2 of a faith that actually works. When we think about everything that God has done, it should cause us to respond to him in faithful work as well. Nothing that we do in service to God can earn his favor or earn his goodness, but in view of how good he's been toward us, to not render that faithfulness back would be criminal. And so James says, I want you to render what you should. If you have your copy of God's word tonight, I want you to turn it to James chapter 5. In James chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20, James summarizes what the whole book of James is all about. We've been walking through the book in these auditorium lessons. Reese in his commentary says he believes that these two verses are the reason James wrote to begin with. And it makes sense when you actually read through the book. James is talking to people who are struggling in their faith. And Reese and others say that's the whole thrust of this whole book to pull people back to God who drifted away from him. James 5 and verse 19, he says, my brothers, if any one of you wanders away from the truth and one bring him back let him know that he that returns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins it's right to call this text with these two verses God's rescue mission for at least two reasons number one God's the one that sends us out on the mission to begin with and number two God is the only one who can rescue those that we retrieve and so to put the focus on God and what he can do is right and it's right for us to think about it Tonight, I want to just look at five things from this text, these two verses that James tells us that we can do and need to acknowledge if we're going to be a part of God's rescue mission. If we do this, it'll change our congregations and our churches. If most churches could go and retrieve those who once occupied the pews and are straight away, most of our congregations would double in size or at least be close to it. It'll change us. But if we neglect it, souls will be eternally lost and we'd be disobeying one of the New Testament's most serious commands. And so let's study together tonight and notice our part, our role in God's rescue mission. Here's number one, accept the harsh reality. 
James starts out with, my brothers, if any one of you does wander from the truth, before we can talk about what we should do if and when somebody wanders, James says the first thing to appreciate is that people can and they do turn away from the Lord. James wants us to wake up to this harsh reality so that we don't deny it and that we're honest with ourselves about our condition and the condition of others. It's possible to so live and turn away from the Lord. And before we can talk about the steps we should take, and we're going to talk about that tonight practically, what should we do when this happens to somebody? The first thing we need to realize is that it can. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19 of those who have made shipwreck concerning the faith. Or 2 Peter 3.17, Peter says, Beware lest any of you fall from your own steadfastness, because it can happen and it does happen. There's a doctrine in religious circles known to some as once saved, always saved. It's the idea that once a person comes into a saved relationship of, with Jesus Christ, there's nothing that he or she could ever do to ever be forever lost. And if that happens to a person, those that believe this idea would say all that means is that this person was never really with him. But what James does in leading off in verse 19 is echoes what the New Testament says elsewhere in an abundant of passages. And that is it is possible to have once been in a saved relationship with Jesus Christ, to be his disciple, and then turn away. In John 6 and verse 66, it says, Then many of his disciples turned back and walked with him no longer. They were his disciples, but instead they departed and they turned away. Or 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, those who have once walked in knowledge and knew the truth, they've gone back like a dog to his vomit or a sow to her wallowing, in the mire, you can turn away and be forever lost. Galatians 5 and verse 4, Paul says, those who were trying to be justified by the law, they have fallen from grace. Paul believed that he could be disqualified because he could. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27. And before we can talk about anything else, James says, I want you to appreciate that this can happen. And while most people in this room tonight would say we don't ascribe to this belief of once saved, always saved, we found our own little cute ways around James' harsh reality as well. Somebody says, how's she doing? Is she going to church anywhere? Is she faithful to the Lord? And we found ways around this harsh reality. We say things like, well, she's all right. He's on the roll. I don't know if he attends, but he's on the roll. He's been baptized. As if those things mean something apart from faithfulness and dedication to God, what James would say about individuals in that condition who are no longer walking uprightly with the Lord is this. They have wandered away from the truth, not to be mean, but the reality is we don't look for things that we don't believe are lost. And if we're not honest about this, if we don't face it for what it really is, we'll never go out and retrieve those. And so James says, I want you to appreciate that this could happen. Happen to who? Notice the text. Brothers, if any one of you. James says this could happen to anybody when Jesus was sitting eating the Passover with his disciples in Mark 14, 17 through 19. It says after they were eating supper, Jesus said, one of you this night will betray me. And they all began to look around and say to themselves, Lord, is it I? James says this could be anybody. It's happened to people as spiritually privileged as Demas. Second Timothy four and verse 10. Paul says Demas has abandoned me, loving this present world, departed to Thessalonica. It happened to Judas. He heard every sermon. He held the money bag, and it still happened to him. Matthew 27, 1 through 5, he couldn't get over his failure, and Judas went out and hung himself. It was on the verge of happening to those that made up the churches of Galatia. Galatians 1 and verse 6, Paul says, you're so soon deserting him who called you with the gospel of Christ. Even they were on the verge of falling away, and we should realize it can happen to us. Somebody says, but she was in the youth group, and they went to lectureships, and he went to Freed Hardeman. If any one of you wanders from the truth, it can happen 
in our ranks. And we need to be honest about this reality. To accept it for what it is and be honest, even if it makes us uncomfortable, we won't move in the right direction until we first sit with this fact. People can and do fall away, though we wish it weren't the case. And we've got to be honest about it. There are some harsh realities that make us uncomfortable that we just don't like to accept. But imagine if doctors talked about dire health conditions like we sometimes talk about those that are in a state of apostasy. You say, doctor, how are things going? What's the test results like? And he's like, well, you're so-so. How am I doing? What have you found? And he says, well, things could be better. You're not at your best, but hey, there are people worse off than you. You'd be more than frustrated. You'd be furious. You say, just tell me the truth so then we can work on the problems that are at hand. And that's where James begins with us. The first thing we have to do is appreciate that this does happen. In December of 2019, there was a scare across the Bronx because of what happened with Carol Sanchez. In a sort of black and white grainy video, it showed her and her mother taking a stroll through the neighborhood when two men in black clothing knocked down her mom and ran off with Carol. The news went crazy. Her family was hysterical. Her community was terrified. Moments later, not very long after the Amber Alerts went out, not only was Carol retrieved, but what they found out is the entire thing was a hoax. She had orchestrated this whole kidnapping herself because she said she was frustrated with her strict parents and all of their rules. She really wasn't in any danger. She really hadn't gone missing. It was all a hoax. When the New Testament says, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, it's really not a drill. It's not a hoax. It's not a scare tactic used by James and other New Testament writers. The reality is some that were once among us have drifted. And if we don't do anything about it, they may never come home. If we're going to be involved in God's rescue mission, the very first thing we have to do is accept this reality and start calling it what it is. She or he is astray. They've wandered. Somebody says, how do I know if somebody's astray? How do I know if they're in this category? There are at least a few telltale signs. Number one, if they just all together abandon the assembling of themselves together with the saints, that's not the only sign, but it's where we should probably begin. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, the Hebrew writer says, this is the habit of some, and I don't want you to adopt it, but number two, if she just tells you, I don't believe that anymore. I've renounced those beliefs. I no longer hold to those things. Paul says the doctrine of Hymenaeus and Philetus, it spreads like gangrene, and he says they've departed from the faith. Number three, if he has perfect attendance, but never lives any of the things that he says that he does. First John 2, 3 through 6, John says, if we say we know him and keep not his commandments, we're a liar. And when those things happen, we don't need to be anybody's judge. We don't need to be heretic detectors, but we need to be honest with each other and with others and say, this person's in trouble and we need to help. Here's number two. James says, acknowledge our responsibility. If we're going to be involved in God's rescue mission, we have to acknowledge what our responsibility is. Brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth, let him know that he which brings back a wanderer or a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death. What's our responsibility? James says anybody among you can wander from the truth, but what about somebody who brings him back? James uses the same word in verse 19 for anyone and someone. James says this could be anybody, and it's interesting because right before this, in James chapter 5 and verse 14 and 15, James was talking about the elders. And we might assume that James would say here that this is the elders' responsibility. And listen, they're not excluded, but James is explicit here, and he says anybody can do this job. In fact, anybody should be ready and willing to do this job. If anybody among you wanders from the truth, anybody that brings that per person back will save a soul from death. Who should be worried about that? Everybody. 
Everybody in the congregation should be saying, I wonder where he went, I wonder where she went, and we want to do something about bringing them home. We've got to accept that this is our responsibility. Nobody's going to do it for us and intercede for us when we find out that people are lost. It's God's rescue mission, but he wants us involved. Who involved? Every one of us. We've got to accept our ownership in this regard, that other people being lost and estranged from God should matter to us just because we're members of the Lord's church. We shouldn't mumble under our breath and say things like, well, I just sort of figured she'd drift. I never really thought it would stick with him. I was always sort of suspicious about his baptism and his conviction and his conversion. Instead, we should be saying, I wonder where they are and I'm interested in going to get them. Hold your hand in James 5 and go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, Paul has already talked about the Galatians and the trouble that they were in in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and in chapter 5. But notice how he ends the book. Galatians 6, verse 1 and verse 2. My brethren, if any one of you are overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's Hebrews 12, 12 and 13, where the Hebrew writer says, lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees, straighten that which is crooked and bring those things back in line that are out of the way so that that which was out of joint may be healed. Realize that we have a responsibility to individuals who have drifted, who have strayed and that are wayward and nobody's going to do it for us. It's our responsibility to help restore the laws. You know, Chip and Joanna Gaines have become famous for what they're able to do in these whole restoration projects, knocking out walls, taking dead structures and bringing them back to life. And sometimes people watch that sort of thing on TV or YouTube and they say, you know what, we could do that at our house. And you find out that do it yourself sometimes turns into don't do it no more because it's not as easy as it seems. Right. It's difficult. You've got to have skill. You've got to have money. You've got to have some intelligence. And you read about the restoration in James 5, 19 through 20. And James is saying, listen. People might be skilled at it. They might be good at it, but nobody has a degree in it. Every one of us can do this. You don't have to be a specialist. All you have to do is care about other individuals who are lost, who are out there, and put that care to work. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another with a pure heart fervently. Whose responsibility is, is it to go out and get them? It's our responsibility. In the summer of last year, a 911 dispatcher was arrested and charged with involuntary manslaughter. Somebody called, they were in dire straits, and she told the person on the other end of the phone, I don't know if she knew who this was or had any relationship with them. She said, listen, we're not sending any ambulance to you unless you agree to go to the hospital when they arrive. The person wouldn't agree with her for whatever reason. She said, we're not sending them. The person died and she was arrested. It wasn't her call to make. It's her responsibility to receive the calls. And when people are hurting, to send the aid. And that's our responsibility. Don't let anybody spiritually die on your watch because you don't believe that they want to live. I don't think he'll respond. I don't think he'll do anything. That's not our job. It's our job to be the watchman and to help him come home. Ezekiel was a watchman in Israel in Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19. And Ezekiel was to call out to the nation and say to them, come back to God, respond to his message and repent and be restored. Whether or not they did anything like that was solely up to them. But Ezekiel couldn't fail at his job and be pleasing to God. And we can't fail at ours and have his approval as well. But notice what James says. He doesn't just talk about our responsibility. He talks about the possibilities. What does he say? If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone does what? Brings him back. Why does he say that? Because we can we can be successful in this regard, and we need to appreciate that we can, and that it's our responsibility to engage in this work. Think about people that you know that once occupied these pews, who were once faithful members at the congregation where you assemble. And think about if we don't go back and get them, they won't make their way back to us. 
We've got a responsibility. But you should probably stay right where you are and refrain from going to get anybody if you don't intend to be successful when you go. If you don't believe that you'll succeed when you go out, this work isn't for you. This is for the spiritual optimist that believes that this person will respond. It's not for the person that says, I'm going to send this text, but she ain't coming back. I'll go. I'm riding in the middle of the night. I'm going to her house, but I'll tell you, I'm doing my Christian duty. But I already know he's setting his ways. There's nothing we can do to get this person back. They said we should. I will. But he probably won't. Jesus wants us to go out with the expectation that people can and they will. Have you ever lost one of your children or grandchildren, even for a second, like in a mall or at a park or at a store? You know that feeling, that fear that comes upon you when you can't find them? How dreadful that is. I hope that's never me. I hope I never lose any of my children for any extended period of time. But if I ever do, I want the officer immediately taken off the case who shows up at my door and knocks and says, listen, sir, it's really cold out here tonight. We really don't want to go, but they pay us and it's our job. So I guess we'll go. You know, we never find them. We never find children. This is the list of all the ones that went missing before yours. We probably won't, but they said that we should go, and so I guess we will. You know, there are other things we could be doing. You probably should wait a few days, and maybe he or she will come back. What would you say to that? You say, that's my child. I care about them. I want you to go out, and I want you to try. I don't care about all the others that haven't come back. Maybe this one will. And James says, when people are lost, that should be our response. Let them know that they can bring an individual back and it's our responsibility to do it. We are God's last line of defense in this regard for those who once walked with the Lord, but who no longer do. Accept our responsibility that this is up to us as the people of God. James speaks collectively here to the entire body of Christians. And he's saying, let the person know that's involved in this turning them back. James uses the word that Luke is fond of. He uses it in Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17 to talk about the work of John the Baptist and what John would be doing in turning the hearts of Israel back to God. And it's what Jesus says about Peter in Luke 22 and verse 32. When you're converted, when you turn again, because that's what this is all about. Did you notice James doesn't say if any one of you wanders away from the church building? Why didn't he say that? He doesn't even say if anybody among you wanders away from the assembly. He says if you wander away from the truth. That's because people, they fall out of love with the truth before they ever fall out of our pews. Something has gone amiss in their minds and a doctrine or belief or set of beliefs that they once held has slipped out of their grasp long before they slipped out of the back doors. And we're bringing them back to the truth that is helping to reorient their vision and say, hey, these are the things that really matter the most. Think through it again. Think about it once more. The world is passing away. Turn back to the one who never does. First John 2, 15 through 17. Focus on things that are above Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Don't quit him. Return home. We can't make them, but we need to make an attempt. And James says it's our responsibility to do so. Now, here's number three. If we're going to be involved in God's rescue mission, we need to realize the importance of this assignment. You know, we talk a lot about when we, <coughs> we talk about evangelism, and we'll sometimes describe it this way. We need to go out and save what? Save souls. The only time that phrase is used in the New Testament, that exact phrase, save a soul, it's right here in James chapter 5 and verse 20. I'm not telling you that when we go out and reach out to non-Christians that it's not soul-saving work, but here's what I'm saying. When you go out and when we go out and reach out to people that are wayward, who once walked with the Lord, it's not second-class kingdom work, it's first-class. James says when you do this, you save a soul from death. It matters. It's evangelism of a different sort, but it's equally important. Realize how serious this is. Don't pass this off to somebody else. Appreciate what really matters. 
It may be an echo to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. When Daniel talked about a day coming when the righteous would turn the wicked back to the light. And maybe that's what James has in mind. But James says, I want you to know how much this matters. He says, let him know. Why does James say let him know? Because sometimes we don't know. We've got no clue how serious this is. And sometimes we underestimate our efforts. Adam Clark said, any man that knows the value of his own soul should spend his life tirelessly working toward the salvation of others. To rob hell of her expectation. And to add even one soul to the church triumphant is of infinite importance. Don't undermine this reality. Souls matter. And when we help people turn back to God, we're literally saving a soul from death. We sometimes underestimate how serious this is. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said, you don't know any mere mortal. Everybody you look on the face of, he says, the people we marry and snub and disrespect, they're eternal human beings. You don't know any mere mortals. This really matters. James says you save a soul from death. What kind? Surely this isn't physical death. No amount of repentance can stop anybody from undergoing physical death. It's spiritual death. The kind of death that's brought about by Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. And James says, when you are engaged in this work, realize how important it is. You are literally snatching a soul out of the grips of hell and the devil and saving that soul from eternal perdition. And you can do it and be successful in doing so. You just think about what Paul wrote to Timothy. In lessons like this, we typically talk about demons. Turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is Paul's last inspired letter, and he talks about the fact that he's going on to his, report, his reward. He's fought a good fight. He's finished the course. He's kept the faith. And then towards the end, really starting in about verse 9, he starts to tell Timothy about the whereabouts of some of their, their friends, their co-workers together in the gospel. He talks about a man named Cretius going to Galatia, to Dalmatia. And then he talks about Titus going to Dalmatia. And then he talks about Mark. Get Mark and bring him. He's useful. Luke's with me. But what does he say about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10? Demas has abandoned me or forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed to Thessalonica. We know Demas fell away, but here's the question. Why does Paul bring it up here? Paul's on his way to glory. Somebody says he's updating Timothy, and that's probably right. But here's the next question. Why tell Timothy where he is? What does that matter? Why not just say, hey, Demas has departed? Why does Paul say, Demas has forsaken me and has departed from me, loving this present world, and departed to Thessalonica? Is it perhaps the case that Paul knew that Timothy had done so much work in Thessalonica, and what he wants Timothy to know is just in case you ever see Demas again, things are not right with his soul. If you ever see him again, I hope you'll think about restoring Demas back to his familiar state of faithfulness. He is no longer a missionary. He's a mission field. He's no longer involved in converting those to Christ. He's in need of conversion himself. His work matters. Timothy, you might be able to reach Demas and bring him back. It does matter. God's rescue mission necessitates that we see the importance of this assignment. Just zoom out from the book of James for a moment. James 5, 19 through 20 is where James ends this, but just zoom out from the book of James to the whole Bible. Why does this matter? You can make the case that this whole idea of restoring the lost back to God is the entire focus of the Bible. From Eden to Gethsemane, from Golgotha to glory, this is really what the whole Bible is all about. Fallen humanity being brought back to a God that we've turned our backs on. Whether it's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden turning away from God and refusing to obey him. Or Israel being pushed into Babylonian captivity because they won't obey the God that loves them. Or the prophets begging and pleading with Israel over and over again. Or John or Jesus with their kingdom-oriented focus saying to Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The whole Bible is about this one idea. 
God saying, I want you to come home. When God says this is his rescue mission, God does the saving, but we're his workers together with him. First Corinthians three and verse nine. Don't sell this short. When you go out to retrieve those that are lost, you're doing glorious work. Listen, there's nothing glamorous about riding in the dead of night to somebody's house to have a difficult conversation about their soul. People don't see the cards and the notes that you write with heartfelt tears and concern for people who know better, but who we miss around the Lord's table. When your head is bowed and the tears are falling because you know if they die in their current condition, they're forever in a day lost. But James says your labor is not in vain. You save a soul from death. If they comply, if they come home, it really does count. And don't think that it doesn't. We need to appreciate how serious it is. James says, let them know, because most times we don't know. We think we're just going through the motions. Hebrews 6 and verse 10, God is not unfaithful to forget the works and labor which you've ministered toward his name and the saints. We need to be reminded of what we're doing. And what a difference it makes. Now, here's number four. Receive the wayward properly. James says, let him know that he which restores a sinner or turns him back from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This word for cover, it can mean the, this idea of keeping it a secret. It's used that way in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's James' way of saying all that they've done is covered over. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. Don't bring it up. God's washed it away, and it covers a multitude of sins. When the way would come home, we haven't done this right until we've done this part. A part of God's rescue mission is receiving the wayward back properly. What did they do? Doesn't matter. How much of it have they done? It covers a multitude of sins. That's James' way of saying whatever they've done, if they make it home, God won't bring it up again, and neither should we. Amen. Woe to the person that seeks to uncover what God has decided to cover. We may all know that they've departed, but heaven refuses to recall their deeds. I, even I, am he who blot out your iniquities for my own name's sake, Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I've cast your sins behind my back, Isaiah 38 and verse 17. In my loving kindness and steadfast love, I've cast your sins into the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 18 and 19. James says, love, when you return this person back, it covers a multitude of sins. And people have sort of wondered, well, whose sins are covered? The person doing the restoring or the person that's been restored, this is sort of easy to answer. It's the same person whose soul was in danger of eternal death. And we should be glad that they're home. We should rejoice that they've made it back to safety and they'll forever be with the Lord. It tells us that they can have a second chance. You know, Rocky has been called America's movie. It's really not because America, Americans are boxing fans or we love the unintelligible way he calls out to Adrian after he wins the championship. I'm not going to impersonate that for you tonight. That's really got nothing to do with it. You know why people love Rocky and why they say it doesn't matter how many Rockies they make. We'll go and see it. At least some people will. It's not even his triumph and his victory. The reason why Americans love Rocky is because of the message that undergirds every film. It says it doesn't matter where you're from. How many times you're knocked down. How many people count you out. You can get up and fight again. You are not down and out. Don't count yourself out. And God's rescue mission says this to other people. It says you don't have God's permission to just lay down and die and give up on yourself. Get back up and fight again, and he'll cover a multitude of sins. In him, if you stay faithful to him, you not only will overcome death, one day you will dance on death's grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul says, thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you hang on, what once would have killed you, you will overcome and you'll read death's obituary. But if we're going to be a part of God's rescue mission, we've got to receive the way we're back properly. In Luke 15, 
Jesus' point is, if you're going to be in God's family, you better learn how to party. I see some of y'all squirming. I do not have a Kendrick Lamar slide that follows this one. Don't worry. But the point is, if you're going to be in God's family, you've got to learn how to party. Woman loses a coin when she finds that all of her friends come together and they rejoice. Man loses a sheep and he finds it. He brings it back home and he rejoices. And Luke 15, when the son comes home, he has his speech prepared and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father stops him. He says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Shoes on his feet and a ring on his hand. Slay the fatted calf, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And you remember the elder brother, he's frustrated he won't even come in. The dad goes out to him in Luke 15 and verse 32. And what does his dad say? He says, it was right that we should make merry and rejoice. For this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. It was right to celebrate. And what the elder brother should have realized in that moment was it was his party too. Because if his father could forgive the younger brother for all that he had done, what the elder brother should have realized is there is nothing that I could ever do to lose my father's love. It shouldn't make him want to depart, but realize that he was in the safest place he could ever be. And when people come home, we need to be that same way. We need to receive the way we're back properly. Do you know that there are people, you already know this, that won't come back because they're worried about what the elder brothers and sisters are going to say. I've been away for so long now. I know everybody's written me off. I know they don't expect me to come back. When they come back, they should be surprised by joy because they hear us rejoicing over their return and not whispering and backbiting about all that they've done or the fact that, well, here we go again. I wonder how long he's going to stay this time. I don't really expect it to stick with him. It never does with her. We need to receive them properly. If God's rejoicing and we're on God's team, we need to do the same thing. Psalm 130 and verse 8 speaks of this, and it says that God forgives all of Israel's iniquities. And guess what? He's forgiven ours too. We know this is a reality, not just because of what the Bible says, but because of what we witnessed. And maybe some of us have even experienced this in our own lives. We say, you know what? There was a time in my life when I wasn't all that I should have been. I maybe occupied a pew. I was on a church roll somewhere, and I wasn't the very best that I could have been. And he brought me back. That should embolden our faith in this process to say, you know what? Heaven threw a party for me. And when I came home, God received me, and he can receive others as well. Now, here's the fifth and final thing. We need to roll up our sleeves and get busy. I told you I have five points. It's probably more like 14, because on this last one, I'm just going to give you nine quick things that you and I need to do. Two, two without the slides, and then seven on the slides, okay? Is that a deal? Okay, here's number one. We need to know those that have gone away from us. If we're going to retrieve them, we need to know who they are. Have they moved their membership or renounced their membership? We need to know there's a difference. First Peter 5 talks about elders knowing those that labor among them. We've got to know that. It's not just up to the elders, though. Members in the congregation, somebody says, you know what? I think they worship over there now. It'd be a good idea to let somebody know that so that we don't assume people are astray that have really just found another place to worship and serve God. It would help us. Here's number two. Act fast. Sometimes we say to ourselves, you know what? If he misses one more Sunday, I'm going to call him. No, call that Sunday. If nothing's wrong, you'll find out nothing's wrong. But if something is wrong, you just sped up the recovery process by one week. Don't wait. First Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, Paul said, when I could bear it no longer, I sought to know about your spiritual state. Paul was in Athens. He said, I sent Silas and Timothy because I just had to know. Paul found out good news. The Thessalonians weren't shaking in their faith, but he just had to know. And we've got to be that way. I just have got to know. I'm concerned about you. Now, here are the rest. Ask why they left. 
Don't ask to be polite. Ask because you really want to know. Flavor Eakley wrote a book a few years ago called Why They Left, talking about members of Churches of Christ. Listen, when they tell you why they left, they may say some things that misrepresent us. They may say some things about God that aren't true, that won't make us happy. But that's not the point. We're listening to try to properly diagnose the apostasy, to figure out what's happened. We might learn something. We've got to care enough to listen. We've got to listen to them and not cut them off and say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's a lie. That's false. First, listen. And ask why they left. But here's next. Eat with them. Spend time with them. It's what Jesus did. Luke 15, 1 and 2. He received sinners and he ate with them. Somebody says, but what about 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10? Doesn't Paul say no is such a one? No, not to even eat. Paul's not talking about a person in this condition. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's talking about somebody who's still among the ranks of the disciples. Who wants to pretend to be faithful and refuses to come to repentance after his or her sin has been acknowledged. But he's not talking about somebody who's drifted away and we're in an effort to restore them and bring them back. We should go to him and say, let's have lunch. I want to talk to you. Let's have a meal. I'm concerned about your spiritual well-being and then be able to ask the questions. Jesus used it all the time. He did it at Matthew's house in Luke chapter 5 with the Pharisee Simon in Luke chapter 7. He used meals to get to the heart of people and discuss difficult things with them. We should warn them. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, if anybody obeys not this epistle, note that person and have nothing to do with them. Treat them not as an enemy, but instead admonish them as a brother. Tell them this is serious business. I'm not your God. I'm not your judge. But in your condition, you're in dire straits. Your spiritual check engine light is on. I don't know how much longer you can go at this rate. You don't know two things. The day of your death and the day of the Lord's return. We really got to talk about making some serious changes. It might be uncomfortable for them. It might be uncomfortable for us, but it's necessary. We've got to warn them and say the right things that they need to hear. Sometimes those difficult things, say them in love, but don't leave them unsaid. We should pray. It's what Jesus did when Luke strayed. I mean, when Peter strayed in Luke 22, 31 and 32, he says, Simon, I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you're turned again, you'll strengthen your brothers. We should pray for him and even tell him, I'm praying for you. You're not all you should be. You're not back with the church, but I want you to be. And I'm praying for you. I'm concerned about your spiritual well-being. And I'm talking to God about it because it really does mean that much to me. We should go to them. You know people who are straight from the Lord. And we sometimes say to ourselves, if I run into them, you probably won't. You just read the book of James. And did you notice in verse 19 and 20, James says nothing about the responsibility of the wayward person. Why doesn't he? You know why. They weren't in the assembly to hear the lesson. It makes no sense to talk to the absent. James says, I'm talking to you because you're there. You've got to go to them. If you wait on them to come to you, they never will. Go to them. Jesus didn't wait for the seven churches. He says, I'm writing seven letters to you. You're in danger. I'm going to you. Get in the car, make the trip. Pick up the phone, make the call. Don't assume somebody else is going to do it. Listen, the people that are closest often are the people that are careless. Don't say that was her friend circle. If they haven't checked, I won't check. You're a Christian. You remember, James? If anyone among you, then any one of you can restore. Don't assume somebody else is going to do it. You do it because it matters. Write them. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 4, Paul says when he knew the Corinthians were in trouble, he wrote, he poured out his heart in anguish because he was concerned about their spiritual state and he wanted to bring them back. Write them cards, write them a lot, include scripture, let them know that you're concerned and you're worried about their spiritual well-being. And then here's the hard part. Do your part and then just wait. They do have a part in this. And if they won't return or respond, there is nothing we can do. Beyond what God's told us to do. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Isaiah assures us God's word never returns to him.
void, but it always accomplishes what he pleases and does the thing that he wants it to do. After we've prayed and wrote and reached out and hugged and warned and admonished, we've got to let the word of God do its work. We've got to trust it to work on their heart. If the truth is in there, it'll never depart from them, even if they departed from it. We can't force people to change. We've got to accept the reality that sometimes people turn away and some prodigals never come home. We don't like that, but it doesn't stop it from it being true. The hashtag Bring Back Our Girls campaign from 2014 started because some 276 schoolgirls were kidnapped from a school in Nigeria by Islamic terrorists. Their parents and their loved ones and people from the community started this move. They started searching for them, but eventually gained traction and was heard throughout the world. Politicians, celebrities, athletes tweeted the same hashtag, Bring Back Our Girls. 58 escaped. 107 were returned, and there are still some that are missing. You really don't see the hashtag anymore because that's kind of the way it happens in our world. People hear devastating things. They get wrapped up in it, and eventually they turn back and do their own thing again. But the parents, there's still a website. The parents and the loved ones, they say, we won't stop until all of them are home. We'll keep calling out. We'll keep crying out. We'll keep writing, protesting, reaching out to our government because we want all of our girls to come back home. Listen, when people stray, we should act as fast as we can. Everybody that's away from the Lord needs to be brought back. Somebody that's been gone for 20 years and somebody that's been gone for 20 days. But the person that's been gone for 20 days has a more likely chance of returning to the Lord. And so we should act as soon as we can. The way the book of James ends, it shocks people. Not because of what he says, really, but because of what he doesn't say. There's no doxology. There's no praise God. There's really no farewell. James just says what he says, and he drops the mic and turns away. And people wonder, why does James do what he does? Why doesn't he end or say, maybe James was busy. Maybe James got carried away. Or maybe, just maybe, James did what he did on purpose. Maybe James wants this to be the last thing we read and the first thing we think about. As Bart led off with in James chapter 1 and verse 1, we are actually reading from a man who knows what it's like to be one way before and to be another way after. And James knows that he was once an unbeliever. And after seeing the risen Lord, he turned to him and became his disciple and his follower. And James ends his letter the way that he does on purpose because he believes if we keep this in the forefront of our minds, if we realize that people are lost, that once occupied the company of the faithful, we can retrieve them and bring them back home. James makes this the last thing that he mentions because it's important to God. We are on a mission, God's rescue mission. And let's not stop until we've done all that we can to bring those home that are straight. 